So we're going to get started um, discussing what you've read this week. And if you could open up your workbooks to page 22, those are the questions that you'll be discussing. So these are the questions. Um, each week, we like to give you the questions that you're going to be discussing in your group so that you introverts kind of know what you want to say before you get there. So go ahead. You're going to have about the next 20 minutes to discuss those questions. We'll come back together at 7 o'clock. All right. This is my least favorite time of the night to break up your discussion. So I'm sorry to interrupt your discussion. Hopefully this time was uh, fruitful and beneficial for you. In our equipping settings, we like to set up our, our times like this so that you can study on your own and then discuss it and then finish with a, a time of teaching. And that's so that when, um, when you're discussing in your group, if we have it the other way, it tends to just be discussing whatever the teacher said rather than what you've studied throughout the week and really helping each other um, understand the text, understand what you've studied, and ask those questions that maybe you had in your study time. So that's why we kind of set up um, our studies this way. But we have a lot to get into, so let's get into it. Um, you might be wondering, why are these up here? Well, because when COVID, you know, during COVID, when we were all on lockdown, we were all looking for something to do. And one of the things that we did as a family was I pulled out this old Chronicles of Narnia book that I had, a super cheap one, and I said, all right, kids, we're going to read these books together. I had read them when I was a kid with my mom. My mom brought these cheap little books um, to each doctor's appointment that I went to as a kid. I was at a lot, a lot of appointments in Iowa City as a kid, and I remember my mom would just bring one, and that was a lot of my childhood was reading the Chronicles of Narnia in waiting rooms, which is just a funny memory. But I hadn't read them since I was probably nine. So we pull them out and I start reading them to the kids. And my love for these books just was like reaffirmed and made alive again. And I'm like, I love these books so much. And I probably got more excited than the kids. But um, so much so that I've read it two times through since then, and I asked for an actual set for Christmas last year and got a great set from my in-laws, and I love it. But if you haven't read The Chronicles of Narnia, the book that is the most popular is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this book, we have four siblings who are called the Pembases, and they're brought into this magical land called Narnia, and they're brought there through a wardrobe. And in this magical land, there's talking animals, there's an evil white witch, there's a good king, Aslan, who's actually a lion, hence the lion on the books. Um, but these four, four siblings were plucked out of their land for a specific purpose. They weren't just any kids who were brought to a foreign land. No, they were plucked out of their land and put into Narnia for 
this specific purpose, and it was to fulfill this prophecy to overthrow this curse that the white witch had put on the land and give the land back to the rightful owner of King Aslan. And as we look at this story, it's such an incredibly well-written story and a very popular one. It's been it's been translated into a lot of different languages. It's been a top seller for years and years and years. And you look at it and you go, I don't really understand why, because it's kind of weird with talking animals and the evil white witch. But I think it's because all of us inside love reading a story that tells a story of something that we feel in us, that this world is in our home and we all long to go somewhere like Narnia. And this similar tone of feeling like this world is not our home is how First Peter starts. First Peter starts off with this tone of exiles. So in verse 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are hard to say all in a row. Um, they are just like the Pembases. They're exiles. They're set apart for a specific purpose, and they're chosen. And when you hear the word exile, you might think of different things. You might think of um, the old-time exiles, or you might think of refugees today. And both of those are true. And either way, a refugee or an exile or a foreigner has a lot of hardships to overcome. There's cultural barriers, there's language barriers, there's a lot of things that um, go with it, like monetary or just even knowing how to get around. And these people in that First Peter's writing to, they are going through these same things. Now, I'll pause. There are some differences in, um, some people would say he's writing to exiles who are actual exiles, and some people would say these are symbolic exiles. It could be either or, but either way, we know that the people who are receiving this letter are going through trials, and they are chosen by God as exiles and foreigners, and they're going through challenges, just like any other refugee or exile might go through. We actually have refugees here in Cedar Falls right now that go through the same cultural challenges. And actually, um, at the Global Summit, Dustin and Kelsey did a great job talking about that, um, how we can love on the internationals and refugees. Um, so if you missed it, hopefully you can hear the recording of it. But um, this is a common theme that we see in the Bible. From the very beginning, the Bible talks about exiles. We see Adam and Eve, where they started out in the garden, and they were sent out from the garden. We see Esther, Naomi, Ruth, even Daniel. We're studying Daniel on Sunday mornings, and he is in exile. And how timely, right, that we're studying First Peter, and we're also studying Daniel, both are exiles. Um, some other examples would be Joseph, Rahab, Moses. Um, Jesus himself, if you remember when he was born, he was actually had to flee with Mary and Joseph for his life because King Herod 
was trying to kill all the infants, and they fled to Egypt. So even Jesus as a child was in exile. And you might say that Jesus was in exile his whole life because this world wasn't his home. And this world is not our home. And hopefully as you read this this week, you were reminded that this world isn't our home either. And that's why we have the tents on the front of your front of your book and on the slides to remind you that we are all exiles. We are all foreigners in this land, and this is not our home. So the book opens with, here is who it's to. It's to exiles, chosen exiles. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to remind them of who they are. They're not only chosen But what are they chosen for? They're chosen for the sanctification. Let's look at it. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Did you notice as you were looking at it this week, the Trinitarian language here? This is so beautiful. When you look at God's design for us, it involves all parts of the Trinity. Do you see it? It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. It takes all three parts of the Trinity to make it work together. As we are chosen by God, we are chosen by God by the foreknowledge of God the Father, for the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient in Christ Jesus. And we are all reminded, just like Peter is reminding them, that we are chosen and we are loved and we are created by the foreknowledge of God to be obedient and to be made holy. And we're going to hit on the holiness of God and the holiness of us in a few weeks as we study later on in 1 Peter. But The rest of this, we're going to kind of split it up into three points. So if you're note takers, I'll give you the three points right off the bat, and then you can follow along. Uh, The three points that we're going to break this into is our future hope of salvation. So future hope, our present hope, and our past hope. So verse 3 starts off like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of God's rich mercy, he has given us a new birth. So why do we need a new birth? Sometimes when you see these languages, it's like, well, why a new birth? Well, because we were all born dead in our sins. And if we were left there, we would all be dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, separated from God. But if we are in Christ, then we are given a new birth, and we're given a new birth into a living hope. And in your study this week, the question was asked, why is it important that it's a living hope? And I hope you thought about that for a minute, because sometimes it can just pass us by so quickly, but it's so important that our hope is alive, because if our hope is in something dead or something that can perish, then we don't have a hope at all. And that's what he's saying here is 
we have a new birth into a living hope. And through that, we have an inheritance. Now, an inheritance isn't given to just a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, unless your friend or neighbor is like your family, because an inheritance is always given to a family member. So when it says we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us, that's again a reminder that we are a chosen child of God. Romans 8 talks about this, that we are heirs of Christ and co-heirs with him. We are God's children with Christ that we will receive an inheritance. So an inheritance, if I were to tell you that my grandma passed away and she was a billionaire, what would go on in your mind? If I heard that, I'd be like, oh, you're getting a pretty nice inheritance. But just think about that. Instantly, that's what goes on in our mind. If you said, my grandma's a billionaire, she passed away, sad to say, you're kind of thinking that inheritance is going to be nice. But think about, the, the Bible talks about how God owns everything. So if we are receiving an inheritance from the living God, think about what an incredible inheritance is coming for us in heaven. And it's something that's far beyond what we can imagine. And it's something that's kept in heaven safe for us. Did you notice that? It says here, it says, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. It's guarded. It's kept safe. Only God can keep something so, so intact and keep it forever, for all eternity, because everything here on earth fades. Nothing lasts forever, but God is able to keep things forever. So if you think about those three words that it says here, perish, defile, fade. What here on earth can perish? Our friends, our spouse, our children, our neighbors, our family. What can be defiled or spoil? Food. What can fade? Our houses, our shiny cars, our clothes, our looks. All of those things can fade. And if we put our hope in something that can perish or spoil or fade, it's not worth our hope at all because it's not going to last. And so often we look around and we try to put our hope in our inheritance in something that's not eternal. And it's so easy to do. We can look at um, our spouse and we can look at them and wish that they would fulfill every desire and every want that we have, but they can't, and they will ultimately fall short, and one day they will die. But if we look to something that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it will last forever, and it will satisfy forever. So if we're looking for joy, if we're looking for hope in something that can perish and can fade, and can spoil, it won't bring us lasting hope or joy. But Jesus has given us this hope, and Jesus has gone before us in the resurrection and has given us this imperishable hope. So that's our future hope that we can look ahead to, this hope that we can one day join Christ in heaven and have our full inheritance of living with him and worshiping God forever. 
But it's interesting to me that Peter starts there. It feels a little backwards when you're reading it because in our day and age, when we say something, we generally will say past, present, future. But he said future, present, past. And that I didn't quite understand that. I was like, well, maybe that's just like a language thing for them. But I think what he's trying to do here is he's trying to set a prize or a goal in, in front of us because anytime we have something that's worth the work at the end, that end goal, we're, we're willing to put in the hard work now. So some of you might still be in college. Some of you are in your master's program. It's hard work, and you're putting forth that work for the end goal. Or some of you who just had babies, you know that that hard work of labor, it's worth the beautiful prize at the end of the baby. There's so many things in our life that we can set our minds to in the prize and the goal at the end. And so what Peter's doing is he's setting before us this future hope to help us endure our present and get through our present with hope rather than, I don't know what to do and feeling hopeless. So he's giving our eyes something to fix on. Our gaze needs to look at the future hope that we have so that it changes our perspective for our current challenges today. So once he tells them their future hope, he goes on to tell them the hope they have in the present. In verse 6, it says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. All right, let's just pause there. Verses like this honestly frustrate me because when you're going through a trial and you read something like this, it's like, really? A short time? This does not feel like a short time. Even if it's like a week-long sickness in the moment when you're like up against the toilet throwing up, you're like, this is not a short time. Whatever your trial is, whether it's small or big, it doesn't feel short. And verses like this can be frustrating, but when we think about our life, even if we suffer with a lifelong illness, if we have something that is a trial our whole life, think about your life in comparison to all of eternity. It is a short time in comparison to all of eternity. And so he can say that if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials for a short time. He can say that because it is true. It's in comparison to all eternity. But that's not to say that what you're going through isn't hard. For him to say it's a short time, that, that's not diminishing. That it is, it is a challenge what you're going through, and it's hard. But the hope that we have is that our trials will end because our trials are short in comparison to eternity. And he goes on to say that our, our trials are going to end, yes, and they're brief and momentary. Those verses that you looked up this week, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, I want to remind you of that truth because it's so beautiful. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. That short, it feels, doesn't feel light in right now, but our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. In Romans 8.18 also sounds very similar to this. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is ahead. So it's reminding us that our suffering will end, it will come to end, and we have a future hope ahead of us. Now, Peter also says that it's various trials. And I know you're probably thinking, okay, Sarah, you're going to be talking forever because you're picking this apart. But this is important right here because he's setting us a framework for suffering. So he says that they're short, and he says they're various. And this is important for us to remember because when in a room like this, we all have different trials. And women are so good at comparing. And so we can look around and think, oh, they're not going through what I'm going through, or they have an easy life, or their Instagram account looks amazing, and their life must just be so easy. We can compare, but we all have various trials that are necessary for us, for our sanctification, not for someone next to us. And so we have to remember that in our trials, they're specific to us, and God knows us, and he knows exactly what we need in the moment. So we don't need to compare. We don't need to exaggerate our trials to try to get more attention. And we also don't need to downplay our trials because sometimes people can say, oh, well, someone out there is going through a trial so much harder than me, so I'm not going to share about what I'm going through. And both of those examples, exaggerating and downplaying, steal the glory from God. Because when we're honest with people about what's actually going on, we allow people to enter in, suffer with us, pray with us, and see what God is going to do. And that gives God all the glory rather than stealing it for ourselves. So that's the beauty of community and the various trials because we're going to learn together And we're going to see that prayer is important and community is important. So um, Elizabeth Elliot, a true hero of the faith, she's taught me a lot about suffering. She defines suffering in this way. Suffering is having something you don't want or wanting something you don't have. So it could be very small of a trial, or it could be very big, if you think of it in that lens. Having something you don't want, or wanting something you don't have. And she, in a podcast, said that in her whole life, she's been through a lot of suffering. Um, Her dentist actually taught her the most about suffering. And she said, my dentist completely changed what I think about suffering. And she said that she was having some teeth work and she was having to go in like multiple times for different work on these teeth. And she went in for like the fifth time and she walked into the dentist and she said, what are you going to do to me now, doc? And he looked at her and he said, no, you mean what am I going to do for you? Do you hear the difference and that, that is, that's our God because he knows exactly what we need and he might hurt us in a moment just like a dentist has to get out those tools to hurt us, to heal us, 
but he's never going to harm you. The difference in hurting and harming is harming is an ill intent, an evil intent. God will never harm you, but he might have to take you through trials in order to heal you or sanctify you or bring more glory to himself, but that's never out of an ill intent. God is always working for you and not doing something to you. So your trials might be various. They might be different. Some trials might be emotional. Some might be physical. Some trials look like nothing on the outside, but on the inside you're really struggling with a mental or emotional illness. Or you might be going through an actual physical trial. And as I look back at my life, I'd say probably a majority of my trials are more physical trials. And walking through this a few years ago, I really struggled with looking at my physical scars on my body and really um, having a lot of disdain for them. And when I look at uh, the scars on my face from my clef cleft lip or palate, or when I look at the scars on my belly from miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies, I would just look at them with disdain. And God had to do a work in my heart and in my life to see that, no, those scars are actual pictures of what God has done. It's a story to tell. It's a, a picture of the past that God has brought me through and the things that he's taught me to refine me and the story that he has um, Keller talks about this when he says, God is so triumphant over evil. Every scar, emotional or physical, that you incur in this life will only make your eventual joy, that's your future hope, and glory in the resurrection greater. The resurrection does not only give you hope for the future, it gives you hope to handle your scars now. So when you walk through trials, one of the first questions you generally ask is why? Why am I going through this? And Peter knew this, so he answers the question in verses 6 and 7. He says, so, this is verse 7, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why do we go through suffering? It's proving our faith, it's refining our faith, and it's for the glory of God. Now, we don't have a whole lot of goldsmiths today, but this was very common in their day and age. They knew what this meant when he said refines like gold. And back then, a goldsmith would take a lump of metal that was to be gold, and he would put it in the fire, and he would burn off what was not gold, those, in, those perishable things. He would burn it off. He'd pull it out, look at it, put it back in the fire again, burn off some more stuff, those perishable things, the things that weren't gold, pull it back out. And what is said in history is that the goldsmith would put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, until he would look at the gold and see the reflection of his face in the gold. And what a beautiful picture of our life and the sanctifying work of God that he puts us through trials, burns off what is perishable, burns off the things that are not of God, takes us out of the fire, lets us cool off, 
looks at us and goes, there's too much Sarah there still. All right, another trial. All in love, I don't want to portray God in a harmful way, but all in love, and God is refining us day in and day out to make us more and more like Christ. So that's why we go through trials. How we go through trials, he finishes off with talking about the inexpressible joy that we have. This is a joy that we can go through trials and the outside world is watching and they don't understand it. And it's a chance to say, this is why I can walk through my trials with joy because I have the hope of eternity. So that's our present hope. And our past hope, Peter talks about the prophets. It says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. So the prophets looked and searched with anticipation. And this is what we can glean from Peter saying this, that we can look with hope and anticipation like the prophets. They searched and searched and we can too. We can look for Christ in anticipation and longing for them and also longing like the angels. And that, that could be a whole nother talk, just that verse on how angels long to know the grace of God like we know it. We don't have time to go into that, but we can take the lesson from the prophets that we have a future hope and we have a present hope today that we can endure our trials with joy and hope. So let's just end with drawing it down to right today. If you are in this room, you might be going through a trial right now, or you will go through a trial. We all face trials in our life. So if you are a believer, and I'm going to assume that most of the room is believers, if you are not a believer, let today be the day of your salvation so that you do have hope in suffering. Because without Christ, we don't have a hope in our suffering. But if you are a believer, if you are in a current trial, I'd say some helpful things would be to ask these three questions. So if you're struggling and you're going, okay, I know that I have a future hope. I know I have a hope today, but I'm really struggling. Here's three questions to ask yourself. <clears throat> what will God do? Think about eternity and the hope that you have. Even just telling yourself, waking up and saying, eternity's coming. That's a hope to remind yourself that eternity is coming. No matter what happens today, I know that one day I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven. Another question to ask yourself is, what is God doing right now? What is he doing? How is he sanctifying me? How is he being glorified? How is he opening doors for me to share the gospel with people because of my trial that I'm walking through? And the last question would be, what has God done? 
So think about your own life. How has God been faithful in your trials in the past? And how can that spur you on through these trials that you're currently facing? If you are having a hard time, sometimes we are so deep in our trial and we're so deep in our suffering or grief that you just cannot answer these questions. Turn to the people next to you and say, I need help. Help me. Help me remember what's true. Help me know how God has been faithful to me in the past. And we need those people to just look at us and say, do you remember this? Do you remember how God answered this prayer? Do you remember this? And just look you in the eye and say, remember. Another thing you can do is look at how God's been faithful in God's word to people in history. Or go pick up a book from our library and read those biographies. This is something that I've made in my life when I'm just like down in the dumps on myself and I just am throwing myself a pity party. I grab one of those biographies and I'm snapped out of it real fast because those people had hard lives. I don't have a hard life. So if you feel like you need to remember the faithfulness that God has given to those who have gone before us, read a biography. Those three questions again, what will God do? What is God doing? And what has God done? So as we close, um, may we be reminded of our future hope that we have in Christ as we endure today with joy and be reminded that we can anticipate Christ coming just like the prophets. Let's pray. God, thank you um, for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for... Um, just the assurance that we are not alone, that we are kept by you, that we are guarded by you. We know that we have eternity coming and we will spend eternity worshiping you at your feet. God, I pray for the women here that are walking through hard, hard trials. God, would you meet them? Would you comfort them? Would you help them to share with their community around them what they're walking through so that you can get the glory and others can enter in and help them? In Jesus' name, amen. So this next uh, 25 minutes that we have remaining, this time is spent for you to just grow relationally with the people at your table. So you can spend this time, your connection group leaders know they can kind of lead this time however they want. You can spend this time discussing um, more about what you've learned. Um, another question, if you just need a question to get your conversation started, would be, how have you been encouraged this week? Or how has God shown his grace to you this week? Um, sometimes we can focus on the bad, but sometimes we need to focus on what has God actually done? How has he been gracious to us this week? So you can answer that question around your table. How are you encouraged? What have you seen God do this week um, in your life? And then spend some time praying for one another. And if you have children in childcare, make sure you're done by eight. If not, take as much time as you need and you can dismiss yourselves.